the course of the past couple of years. And one young man in particular had an answer that I really uh, just thought was just really intriguing. And he said that he feels like in the last couple of years, he's really learned what it means to fear the Lord. And what he meant by that was that he says, you know, growing up and, um, you know, just kind of getting to high school and really starting to hear about God for the first time, I heard a lot about God's love, but not a lot about his justice. And he said, I think I've just kind of grown in an appreciation um, for the fact that God means business and that there are eternal consequences for our decisions and our actions. And I just thought that was a pretty um, mature perspective to have uh, at such a young age. And in the book of Proverbs, many of you are probably familiar with the verse that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I've spoken on that at several different times, and I always kind of define fear of the Lord as having um, a healthy respect for God's power and his authority. Because in general, I feel like most Christians have a pretty low view of God's holiness and his righteousness and his majesty. And we tend to focus a lot on God's love, which is certainly true. The Bible is very clear that God's love is unfailing, that God's love is unconditional for us. But I wonder if, if in emphasizing that so much that we've kind of lost the bigger perspective that really is a, a more full context of all that kind of makes up his nature and all of who he is, that he is full of grace, yes, but and truth. He is, he is loving and he is just at the same time. And I wonder what we've lost uh, in that. In the last three Sundays, um, we've been able to watch some pretty amazing stories unfold. If you haven't been here, you can go on our website and you can view those videos as well as the messages that went with those. So catch up with us if you, this was the first one you've seen today. But we've kind of followed the stories of, uh, of Rob and Sam that you met today. And I just want to reiterate for you, because they know this, but Rob and Sam are not superhuman Christians. They are just normal people like you and I. They have fears about what they're doing, doubts about what they're doing. There's times when both of them have just wanted to just throw in the towel and just pretend like none of this happened. Um, maybe the, the only difference between them and some of us is that they've taken seriously some of the stirrings that God has put on their heart. And they feel like, you know, to go any other way but the path that God's laying out for them would be disobedient to what he would want them to do. And for Rob, it meant going and starting basketball teams and, and having these kids over to his home on the weekends and kind of sharing life with them. For Sam, as you can see, it, it's meant for her. She quit her job. She's moving into our neighborhood here in the next week and trying to reach out to the widows and orphans right around us. So with those stories kind of fresh in our minds, I want us to take a look today at kind of the process for how do we prepare ourselves to be people that can respond when God calls. Because I feel like there's some identifiable steps in, in preparing our hearts to be people who can passionately serve in God's kingdom and, and be ready when that time comes. And I think that process is best described by looking at the life of a man named Isaiah. Uh, he was a guy who uh, lived about 700 years before the birth of Christ. And so we're going to look at his story a little bit today. So I want you to open up to Isaiah chapter 6 in your pew Bibles. It's page 477. <clears throat> page 477, chapter 6 of Isaiah. 
Just some quick background on Isaiah. He's kind of considered um, the greatest prophet of the time. At that time in history, God would choose uh, a messenger. So God would speak to that messenger, and then that messenger would speak to the people of Israel. His name means the Lord saves. And he begins, and he ministered, just to give you a time frame reference, from about 740 to 680 B.C., So about 60 years, he was kind of the spokesman for God to the people of Israel. And in chapter 6, as you see, it begins with this statement, in the year that King Uzziah died. And that's an important fact. King Uzziah had been predominantly a really good king most of his life, but he had kind of made some mistakes at the end. And so as a result, God punished him by, um, by giving him leprosy. And then he dies. And so the nation of Israel is kind of at a place of, of confusion. You know, the, the king um, didn't end well. Now his throne is vacated, and it's, um, it's a, a time of uncertainty. And so in the midst of that time in history, Isaiah comes in, and he kind of takes his, his people's eyes off of that earthly throne that's vacant, and he says, guys, I want you to look at the king of kings who's always on his throne, no matter how chaotic your life might be here on earth, he's always there. So the first step in the process of preparing ourselves to respond to God is acknowledging his power and authority. And the scene that Isaiah describes in verses 1 through 4 is pretty overwhelming, hard for us to imagine, but I want you to do the best you can. And really, I'd love you to just close your eyes while I read this. And like in our flawed mind, kind of picture what you think this might have looked like. Or what it does look like. And just listen. So Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Okay, when you open your eyes now, and you hear the magic word, I want you to all bark like a dog. No, I'm just kidding. Hopefully you weren't hypnotized by that time, okay? Um, Here is one artist's rendition of the throne room of God, okay? Somebody kind of tried to create a picture of what that might have looked like. How many of you, anybody look just like that? You're like, oh, dang, that was nothing like that, huh? (laughs) It's hard for us to imagine what that's like, but the Bible makes it very clear that God is on his throne, in the book of Revelation, which is kind of a vision of you know, the end times, it's, um, it's mentioned more than 30 times in that book alone that God is on his throne. And Isaiah was the only person that had the privilege of seeing God on his throne. Here are some other examples of uh, some verses that, that we can see that with. If you could put those up there. In 1 Kings, it says, Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And then Daniel says this, as I looked, thrones were set in place 
and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. Pretty amazing stuff. I want you to actually hold your finger there in Isaiah, and I want you to turn over to Revelation, the very last book, chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, the whole chapter kind of is a description of John getting this intimate inside look into the throne room. And in verse 1 it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. He says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne was 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being." So the throne is mentioned uh, eight different times just in that one little chapter. And, and Isaiah's vision and John's vision and Revelation were written about 800 years apart. But you can see a lot of similarities in, in their description and the things that the, the angels were saying in the presence of God. And just as a reminder, that's what Jesus left when he took on flesh and came to this earth to die for you and me. Seems like a pretty big sacrifice. You know, it wasn't just your man cave, right, downstairs. I mean, this was the throne room of God that he gave up to be with us. Now, back in Isaiah, if you can flip back to there, chapter 6. Sometimes we need this reminder, don't we? Isn't it good to go back to the word and be like, whoa, man, (laughs) this is serious. Verse 2 says this, above him, above God, were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. 
So seraphim are heavenly beings, and their name literally means burning ones. And it says, with two wings, they covered their face in just humility before God. And the people of Israel would have understood that humans weren't allowed to look at God directly. If you remember in Moses' story, he goes up on the mountain to meet with God and to get the Ten Commandments, and God gives him a glimpse of his glory. But this is what he says in Exodus thirty-three, nineteen, and 20. He says, And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And so from that, we know that no human can view God directly, and now we find out that not even the angels can, can view him either. So two wings are covering their face. It says two other wings, it says, covered their feet. And commentators said that, that our feet are humble parts of our body. I think that's kind of like, you know, slang for just this kind of gross, kind of nasty, you know. So out of respect, they cover up their feet. And then it says with two other wings, they use those to fly. And I love the explanation that a 19th century pastor, some of you guys have heard of him, Charles Spurgeon, gave of this, this whole scene. He, this is what he said. He says, thus they have four wings for adoration and two for active energy, four to conceal themselves, and two with which to occupy themselves in service. And we may learn from them that we shall serve God best when we are most deeply reverend and humbled in his presence. Veneration must be in larger proportion than vigor. Adoration must exceed activity. As Mary at Jesus' feet was preferred to Martha with her much serving, so much sacred, so must sacred reverence take the first place and energetic service follow in due course. It's such a helpful reminder. I love that little, little phrase he says there, adoration must exceed activity. Why do you think that's true? Why must adoration exceed activity? What do you think? Okay, we get caught up in the activity and we forget why we're doing it. Yeah, that's great. We forget the motivation behind it, right? Yeah, get. Yeah, we're in, when we're in his presence, we can you know, experience him, uh, be filled by him, and understand that it's him working through us, not us working for him. And then we have a tendency to kind of take some of the glory that we don't deserve, right? Yeah, we worship him, absolutely. And so one of the f- questions that I have for us today is just, does that describe our life? In your life, does adoration exceed activity? Does activity flow out of adoration? That's what this Sunday should be. (laughs) This Sunday as you come and worship, we should be preparing ourselves by adoring God to then be used by him the rest of the week. 
and inactivity. Verse 3 says this. It says that they call out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And we just heard that, that same statement in Revelation 4. So it's, it's confirmed uh, again and again. And in the Hebrew language, um, the way that they would emphasize something is they would repeat it. Okay? And that word holy means set apart. And so what they're saying is that God is exponentially set apart from you and I. He is not just holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. And God himself speaks to Isaiah in chapter 55, and this is what he says. God speaking to Isaiah. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. He says, as high as the heavens, uh, I'm sorry, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is holy, holy, holy. And so is there a reverence in the way in which we approach God and the way that we interact with him? How does that knowledge that he is holy, 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 how does that impact the way that we interact with him on a daily basis and the way that we follow him as followers of Christ? What does that mean for, for our mindset and our approach and our posture towards him? And so then after this vision takes place, Isaiah responds in verse 5. He says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. So there's this realization and, and acknowledgement of God's power. And that's always a, first, a very important step in relating to God. And, and in response to that power and authority, that holiness that he sees, his sin is just brought to the surface and it's just right before his eyes. And he says, whoa. <laughs> he says, I am ruined. And other translations says, I am undone. I am destroyed. I'm ripped apart. Have you seen the king that way? I think most of the time, I really have no clue who is this God that I claim to be serving. I I think I uh, don't have the faintest clue. (laughs) Look at how the angels responded to him. The angels who were heavenly being themselves covered their face, wouldn't even look at God. And they praised him all day long. And it makes me wonder, who am I to be just kind of nonchalant (laughs) or flippant sometimes about this God that I claim to worship? And did you notice that this vision that Isaiah had didn't immediately make him feel very good? It did help him understand his desperate need for forgiveness. And Job had a similar response. If you've read his story, he has this encounter with God. And then kind of towards the end of that book, Job 42, it says, you said, God said, listen now and I will speak. Job's kind of been questioning God chapter after chapter. He says, I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you. This is Job speaking now, but my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes. You see a similar contrition, a similar humility, a similar confession and awareness of their brokenness and their sin in the midst of being in God's presence. You see, if we don't see God in his holiness, 
It makes it very difficult for us to have an appreciation for the depth of our need for grace and forgiveness. It's only in the light of his holiness that our perceived holiness, how good we think we are, is kind of unmasked as as a really poor reflection and a cheap substitute. And Isaiah saw his sin and the sin of his people reflected in their words. Remember, Isaiah is going to be called to be a messenger. And he's going to be a man that's going to be speaking the words. And he says, guys, my lips are unclean. He says this to God. And he says, so are the lips of my people. And that's just his particular example. You can fill in the blank there. For you, you might say, God, my, I have an unclean mind. Or you might say, I have an unclean heart. Or I know that I have unclean motives at times. And in order to be a man or woman that God can use, there has to be an acknowledgement of a desperate state and a desperate need that without his grace and forgiveness, we would be lost. We have nothing to offer him. We have to be undone in the light of his glory in order to be someone that God can use. Otherwise, it's just gonna be our efforts and our pride for our glory. Thirdly, once we've confessed our sin and our need for him, we have to receive his offers of forgiveness. I want you to see what happens next in verse six. So in verse five, he cries out, he recognizes his sin, he confesses it. And then in verse six, it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So this angel ministers to Isaiah, this being whose very name means burning one, has to use tongs to get this coal from the fire. Okay, so you can imagine how hot that was. And you can imagine that it didn't feel good when it touched Isaiah. It probably didn't feel very good. And it reminded me of something. It tells me that sometimes there is pain in true redemption. Because a lot of times it involves discipline. And you and I, for the most part, don't like to be disciplined. We run from correction whenever at all costs sometimes, right? I love what the writer of Hebrews says about the Father's love towards us in Hebrews chapter 12. We could put that slide up. It says this. Sorry, it's kind of small. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Isn't that amazing? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Just read that again. That's, that's really good stuff. And check out what Spurgeon said, again, regarding this whole idea. He says, Isaiah knew he did not serve the Lord like these seraphim, the burning ones. So God said, I will light a fire in you also. That is why a burning coal was used to purify Isaiah, 
Jehovah, who is a consuming fire, can only fitly be served by those who are on fire, whether they be angels or men. It's a great perspective. So now that he's done the first three steps, he's acknowledged God's power and authority. He's he's seen and acknowledged and confessed his own sin. He's received cleansing from God. Now he's ready to surrender to whatever God might ask of him. So let's look at verse 8. It says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. God does a, does a very curious thing here. He asks a question. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And that's a great verse talking about the Trinity. You know, who will go for us? The Father, Son, and the Spirit, right? He asks this question. Why do you think he does that? Why do you think God asks the question? I mean, Isaiah's standing right there in front of him. Why doesn't he just tell him, Isaiah, I want you to do this? Okay, what do you mean? Okay, he's making it his choice. He's empowering Isaiah. That's great. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he doesn't force us to do anything. He gives Isaiah an opportunity to show his love for him, his allegiance to him by being the one that speaks the words himself. That's great. It's not that God doesn't know, but he wants a willing heart, somebody who searched themselves and can truly come and say, Lord, here am I. Send me. And the only way that a person is ready to come, kind of completely surrendered and ready to do whatever God ask is that we have to be in an encounter with a God who is holy, holy, holy. And they have to have acknowledged their sin and been cleansed by their sin. And guys, if you don't remember anything from what we've said today, I want you to remember this, this statement, okay? Isaiah wanted to be the answer to God's question. Isaiah wanted to be the answer to God's question. And what created this heart in Isaiah? What created this heart that would respond like that? What created it was that he had been in the presence of the Lord. And when we get into the presence of the Lord, we start to care about the things that God cares about. And God deeply cared about his people, and he needed a messenger that that would represent him. And so that was kind of the role, the task that Isaiah stepped into But hear me on this, guys. It's not about the particular task at hand. It's not about the thing that God might ask you to do. For Rob, it was starting basketball teams. For Sam, it's moving into the neighborhood. And all of that is good stuff. And it's going to be different for everyone. But the real issue is this. The real issue issue is, is our heart surrendered? Are we open to whatever it is God might call us to do? But do we just lay our agenda aside and just say, God, here I am. What do you have for me? I recently began rereading a book that I read in college, an old school book. How many people have read Loving God? Huh? Yeah, there we go. Everybody, right? 40 or over. And 
Exactly. Charles Colson was a guy that went to prison for Watergate, and, um, and he became a Christian there and wrote this book. But he tells a story about a, a small-town judge um, who'd kind of risen in the ranks to be a, a county judge representing their county, and, and he was kind of on the fast track to success and power in, in, in that area of Indiana that he lived in. And then his wife went to church and became a Christian, and then she roped him into coming to church, and uh, eventually he gave his life to Christ as well in, in 1977. But then he talks about, and listen to his words about what he felt was like another change that had to take place in his life. This guy's name was Bill. It says, Bill sees his own experiences as part of God's plan. He says, I met and accepted Christ in 1977, but I continued in control of my own destiny. It wasn't until November of 1981, after becoming an emotional wreck, that I let go and turned the future over to him. I surrendered myself. Since then, he has continued to teach me submission and patience, the need to study his word and seek him in prayer. He has removed much of my anger. In short, I am at peace today, knowing him. And that makes me count as gain all that the world might count as loss. So you see, there was an initial conversion, an initial moment in Bill's life where he realized his need to be forgiven, that he had sin, that that he couldn't take care of on his own and needed God to come and, and forgive him and cleanse him and make him new. But he understood that for the next four years that he was still kind of trying to control his day-to-day life and that he really hadn't surrendered a lot of those things to God. And there was kind of this different conversion that had to take place for him to really be able to say, God, I've yielded it all to you. And here am I. What do you have for me? And four years doesn't seem very long to me. It, It took me 13 years to get to that very place in my own life. I came to Christ when I was 16, but it wasn't until I was 29, and living as a young adult, I was doing a lot of Christian stuff, and I was growing and all those things, but man, I was holding on to my career like this. I was a teacher and a coach, and I thought that's what I would always wanted to do and was always going to do, but really beneath it all, more than just that, it was just this idea of control and just security. I liked the security of my teaching job. When I was a kid, I'd moved around a lot, and I just wanted to be in this town, in this house, and and let my kids grow up in that environment and not just, you know, move all over the place and maybe away from their family or whatever. And finally, God made me so restless and so frustrated in my job that I finally got to the point where I was just like, okay, God. And really, for the first time, in my life, I just said, you win, and I'm yours, and, and I really said the words, I will go wherever and do whatever you want me to do, and completely surrender to you, and guys, that was the victory for me. God actually gave me the opportunity to stay right where I was in the school district and give me another job, um, but then there was also this ministry path that he laid out before me that I chose to take. And today as we close and take communion, I want to ask all of you guys to kind of examine your heart in light of Isaiah's story and Rob's story and Sam's story and Bill's story and my story and ask yourself the question, 
what is it in my life that's really keeping me from just being fully open, fully ready to serve God in whatever capacity he might call me to? And maybe as you kind of search and you look through this process of this calling that we talked about today, maybe for you it's just been a lack of respect for the holiness of God, for who he is, his power and his authority over your life. Or maybe it's just an acknowledgement of your sin. Maybe you need to be at a place where Isaiah was where he just says, woe is me. In light of who God is, man, I, there's some things in my life that need to change that I need to acknowledge. Maybe you need to receive God's forgiveness. Maybe he said, hey, you're forgiven, but you're still living like you're in chains and you're not accepting it, you're not moving on, you're not living like a person who's been cleansed and you're a slave to that guilt. Maybe it's fully receiving that cleansing grace and, and love that God has for you. And you know what? Probably at some level, it's all those things. Or maybe there's something very clearly that you need to surrender in your life. Like I said, for me, it was just kind of control of wanting my life to be secure. Maybe for you, it's, it's comfort. Maybe that's kind of your God, your idol. And so you're pursuing whatever in life, jobs, money, material things that will make your life comfortable and you're really not open to what God might have you do. Maybe it's that you kind of avoid pain and discipline and change and correction by God at all costs and you're not open to the things he might want to change in you. I want to invite you to to write down on this little piece of cloth that you got as you came in today and if you didn't get one We have some ushers that can help pass those out to you, so just raise your hand. And On this, I want you to just write down whatever it is that you feel like you need to surrender or you need to grow in or or learn, confess, acknowledge before a holy God this morning. And here's my prayer, and I know it's kind of distracting with this stuff right now, but I want you to, to hone in here with me, okay? My prayer is that your heart today would be at a place where you are saying to him, here am I. Here am I. Send me. That you are so in love with this God that you're willing to come to that place and trust him. Because guys, in our world right now, each and every day, a million times in a million different ways, God is asking that question. When he looked around this neighborhood and he saw these kids at Edison, he was saying, you know, who, who will coach these kids? Who will move into this neighborhood? Who will feed these kids? Who will, you know, go to Missouri Western or whatever college you're going to and minister to these children I love that are lost? Who in the school district that you teach in will minister and care for these teachers that I know and love? Who on the teams that you're a part of will be a representative for me? He's asking that question. Whom will I send? Who will go? And I want all of our hearts to be that we want to be the answer to God's question and say, God, here am I. Send me. So as you write that down and we get ready to take communion, the way communion works here is we give you a couple minutes of silence just to talk to God about where you are. And um, the ushers will dismiss you. You'll come down. You tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. And as you do that, as you come down, if you just want to lay these little white pieces of cloth just kind of on the steps up here, just as kind of a physical act of just surrendering and laying that down and saying, God, I, I want to lay that down so I can be fully yours. And guys, remember the victory this morning is in the surrender. 
it might take a while for God to kind of reveal what it is that he might have you do. And that's, that's okay. So don't panic about that. But just rejoice in the fact that you're willing to do that. And God will be so encouraged by that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing time in your word. God, I forget all the time how holy, holy, holy you are. And God, one day I know that when, as many of us will stand in your presence, we will be undone. And we will be blown away that a holy God would associate and relate and die for me. And God, I, we want to be the answer to your question, whom will I send? We know your heart is for your people and that as we walk around the streets of St. Joe or wherever we live, there are just broken people, broken lives, broken family all around us. And you are desperate for your children who have a little bit of faith, not much, but just a little, to say, God, I don't really know what that's going to mean, but send me. My heart is yours. God, loosen the grip of the things that we want to control that keep us from being fully available to you. Speak to us during this time, and, and God, give us a sense of victory this morning in just surrendering some things to you. Thank you so much as we come to you, just hear our prayers, God.